Welcome back to Unfeigned Christianity, where we help Christians find culturally aware, biblically nuanced, and Jesus-embodying responses to current day issues. I'm excited to have a friend and mentor figure on the podcast today, Dwight Kingrich. He is a blogger, he's a student of scripture, and just does a lot of good, in-depth biblical study and commentary, you could say almost, or just, not, sorry, commentary is the wrong word, but just does a really good job of diving into biblical interpretation and extrapolating it for the rest of us as we seek to study scripture and understand it at a deeper level. He is in the middle of a project that he started, I believe, in 2020. Maybe he may have started before that, but 2020 is when he started publishing it on his blog. But just looking at what does scripture teach about divorce and remarriage? And I've really appreciated following, tracking with his project the last couple of years. He did a lot of kind of historical studies on some of the early Anabaptists and kind of the the trend within Anabaptist tradition and how they understood divorce and remarriage. And now he's diving into what does Jesus say about divorce and remarriage, and then he's going to get to what Paul says about divorce and remarriage. So I, I just asked him to come on the podcast and, and share some of what he's been learning, and I'm really excited to share this episode with you. So I'm, I'm not going to belabor it much longer. As always, remember uh, to rate and review if you're listening to this on iTunes or if you're watching this video on YouTube, give a thumbs up, rate and review it. That helps uh, with the algorithms so that it can be more visible, more seen. And I'd also love to hear like how you find this episode or other episodes, like how it impacts you. So whether you can leave a comment on YouTube, you can leave comments. I don't think you can on any podcast network. I guess a review would be a comment, but uh, shoot me a message at podcast at ashawitmer.com or just on Facebook, social media. I always enjoy getting feedback from the audience. That way I know how it's landing on you and how I can better serve through this, this medium. Again, there's an expanded version of this podcast where we dive into some of the common misinterpretations of what the Bible says about or miss kind of what we think the Bible says and, and how it actually doesn't necessarily say that um, concerning divorce and remarriage, that is available as a part of the membership of Unfeigned Christianity. Just go to www.ashawitmer.com forward slash member and you can learn more about becoming a member of Unfeigned Christianity. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dwight Gingrich. Welcome to Unfeigned Christianity, Dwight. Thank you. Glad to be here, Asher. It's good to have you on. I have bugged you at least once or twice before to come on and have some conversation about different things. And I think I finally got the topic that you felt comfortable talking about. 
Yeah, and it's a bit ironic because probably as recently as six months to a year ago, I might not have felt confident yet talking, but I I feel like I'm at a place now where my cards are pretty much on the table on my own blog. So I'm and also more confidence just due to my own study. So I, yeah, I'm grateful to be here and uh, I want to thank you for my, your support of my study and writing over the years, um, which pre-existed this topic and and. Uh, yeah, I don't even know whether you're supportive of my view on this topic. I'll just make that clear. But you've been kindly um, helping to support my blog writing in a small but faithful way. So I thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I was talking before we started hitting record. Um, Dwight has been, for our audience, Dwight has been, oh, did it start in 2020 or was it after 2020 when you started the publishing it on your blog? Uh yeah. About two and a half years ago. So, yeah, yeah. in 2020. He's been working through a study on divorce and remarriage, kind of historically, specifically kind of a Mennonite history of their position on divorce and remarriage, at least some of the early context. And then working through some of what scripture says. I, I had been tracking for most of that until our move this summer. And then I... I continue to blog, but I've kind of followed, fallen away from reading other blogs uh, for the last six months or so. And so um, you said you were, you've kind of tipped your cards as far as your position. So I have not read that yet because I, I'm still curious what your position is. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And it's not that I do not have questions remaining just to be clear, but yes, I'm getting yeah. a little bit more confidence of what, how I understand scripture to, to speak. Maybe I'll go back and read those and decide to take down this podcast episode. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. That's a joke. Oh, I really, I really appreciate your work, whether or not I agree with your conclusions. Um, I just, I've, I think you've, I'm trying to, I don't even remember where we first started connecting. I think you had inter engaged me on my blog a number of years ago. And mm -hmm. it just felt from your engagements, I felt like some, I, I felt like a mentor engaging. It, it felt like a mentor engaging me, sometimes having questions, sometimes having expounding the perspective further and, and not just necessarily being antagonistic or so forth. Um, like some, some people can come in a little more aggressively when they disagree mm -hmm. and, and that kind of led me to when I started Bible college, ask if you would be a part of a group that would be willing to, to have questions or um, discuss any questions that I have and things I'm studying. Mm -hmm. And kind of through that, got to see a little more firsthand some of your process in, in studying the Bible. And I really appreciate your blog. Your Your blog is different than mine in that – Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm reading a, I feel like I'm reading a commentary, but to be honest with you, I, it feels better than a commentary. Like I would rather read your blog <laughs> than commentaries. You're going to scare people off, but thank you. Yeah. I'm that sorry. is naturally where my mind goes though. You know, I was an English, English literature major and, uh, I have read, uh, you know, a number of commentary commentaries cover to cover. So my brain yeah. kind of goes in those routes. Yeah. Well, and maybe I think it's 
maybe the structure that you in, engage a, a, a passage of scripture feels like a commentary. But as far as the actual writing, like there's a lot more, some commentaries can be a little rigid to read sometimes or something. Um, and yours has flow to it and, and often engage. Like one thing I like that you do that um, commentaries don't really do is engage specific examples of, of situations that like you're working through a text and then like, here's an example of where you might have to flesh that out. At least some, sometimes you've done that. Mm-hmm. And so it creates a little more uh, applicability to what you're reading. And so um, I forget where I was going with that. Other than that, I, I've grown to like, you're, you're a primary, well, not a primary source, but you're one of my first secondary sources. When I study scripture, I see, I go to your website and search as Dwight written on this and, and see what he said about it. And so sometimes you think of like some books that are published and you, you know, the authors as they write books but then when you engage their book, you realize they're pulling from other more scholarly work. Right. And I don't know if this is where you want to be or not. To me, this is like, I think it'd be cool to be at Dwight's level one day, but um, you feel like one of those scholars that are providing meaty material for, for other people. Well, Thank you. And I think it's a matter of just different giftings as well. We, we need a variety of giftings. And I also want to say very quickly that I have intentionally not blogged on quite a few topics where I just don't know. I haven't had time to dig into them. And I'm yeah. feeling, you know, what I don't know yet really how best to understand scripture. So I tend to um, narrow my focus and go deep and uh you have a gifting in going the other way and uh, covering a lot of topics that people need to hear on. And so, yeah, God's church. Yeah. Needs all kinds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were saying a little bit about uh, just the process of Bible study and, and how to go about it. And you, we've been talking about that a little bit off air before. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want me to share a few notes? I'd scribble down on that. Or yeah. The questions. No, I, my, my question, my general question is just like, well, I guess I, I don't really have a general question, but I just thought it would be good before we dive into specifically divorce and remarriage to discuss like how, what is the Bible and how, how do we study it? Because I mean, just this is like the extreme example, but you know, we have a place in, is it Malachi where God, where God says he clearly hate, he says he hates divorce. And then we have, um, before that, is it, uh, I can't remember what story is it. Um, Nehemiah where he commands him to go and and they're supposed to divorce because they had married right. Gentile people. Married foreign and so, wife, married foreign wives. Yeah. Foreign wives. So just, yeah, like script scripture is not, you know, if if I write a book, when I write a book, when I wrote Live Free, I go through from beginning to end and try to make it consistent. <laughs> right. And 
even there's there, one human one human author for the entire book. Yeah, exactly. And there's kind of one general context and issue I'm I'm writing on. But scripture isn't quite that way. And so how do we how do we study it? Mm-hmm. Um, I I just love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I mean that we could spend a lot of time on it. So I'm going to just kind of do a random shot of a variety of ideas, but building on what you already said, I mean, we have to recognize um, that God used a wide variety of human authors and there with, within a lot of the, the books of the Bible, there's not only the author, the human author of that book, but there are often multiple voices within a given book as well. And so we have to be wise enough to um, to look at the, the context in which each of these each uh, scriptural passage is given. Um, historical context um, is is very important. And uh, first of all, by historical context, the context within the within the canon, the story that Scripture itself tells mm-hmm. within that story, and where where does this land and uh, and then even more narrowly, what can we discern within the specific book about, okay, you know, when when Malachi was talking about divorce, what was really on his mind? What was concerning him? When Jesus was talking to the Pharisees about divorce, what was the, the point of conflict, really? He wasn't trying to give a systematic theology about divorce and remarriage. Nobody yeah. did in, anywhere in Scripture. Um, they were addressing specific contextual needs. Um and that's so important. Yeah. And then we have to be, so we have to be careful then that we don't bring our own agenda. Um, like I would say that Mennonites 125 years ago, one of their main agendas was we have this social problem in the world, the divorce evil, as it was known. What are we going to do about the divorce evil? And then they looked to scripture for a, a firm way to get rid of the divorce evil. Um, today, yeah. it, it might be some saying, well, we are radical Christians. So what's the most radical way we can interpret this passage? Yeah. Or someone else might be saying, um, you know, this is the this is the Me Too era. And, and we are concerned about uh, abuse and rightly so. Um, and but that might be so much the lens through which to read everything that they're not even thinking about the original historical context. So. Yeah. yeah, that that's so important that we have to start there and do the do the biblical exegesis before we um, force our systematic theology on a passage. Yeah, um, yeah. I I'm definitely one who enjoys digging nuts and bolts into a specific passage rather than kind of doing a whole lot of big broad brush systematic theology um, mm-hmm. writing. And I think we we have to start with the exegesis and let each passage speak in its context before we try to force a synthesis. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, and it's interesting you brought that up and that's kind of a side, a side discussion we could have, but I think it's something I've been thinking about a lot about in an era where abuse is rightly so getting a lot of attention and being addressed. Um, or another example, yeah, we could some some of the larger co- cultural conversation of gender and sexuality and and processing some of that. It's mm-hmm. easy to then take what feels like, well, yeah, I'm not. 
Yeah. It's easy to just take everything that we're processing through and what people are saying and to look at scripture kind of through that lens. And yeah, on one hand, can that be helpful in if, if there's like historically we've missed something in a yes, passage? I think, I think it is helpful to allow current needs to help us ask questions about what scripture is saying. Um, but I think it's, we must do our best to first ask what questions is this passage? Was it, what questions was this passage first written to address? Um, yeah. And, and yeah. allow that, that agenda to, to speak first. Um, but then, I mean, even within scripture, there's plenty of examples of New Testament authors quoting Old Testament passages in ways that were not the main focus of the Old Testament passage, but still had a true yeah. relevance. Um, so, yeah, we can let yeah. our current needs definitely help us see things in the text. Um, but yeah. it cannot be at the expense of what was the original purpose. We have to yeah. see that clearly first. Yeah. What it, Maybe you were going to touch on this at all, but um, how do you reconcile the Old Testament with the New Testament as you're as you're addressing a study like this, do, for instance, at just like at a fate reading on its face, what Jesus says about the a divorce and remarriage isn't quite as, it's not the same thing as like what Leviticus says. Like Leviticus gives a, a little bit of a clearer space for, I don't know if you'd say divorce, divorce and remarriage, but for some kind of separation than what Jesus might give. And is that like, do we just focus on what Jesus said or should Leviticus shape our informing? I guess like you just, you just talked about addressing the questions that a specific passage was intended to ask or, or address mm -hmm. and sometimes yeah maybe i'm trying to think if i keep going trying to flesh this question out or just let you respond to that one of the tenets of an anabaptist theology is what might be referred to as a jesus hermeneutic mm -hmm. and i don't always understand what people mean by a jesus hermeneutic but i think the base basic gist is that we like all our hermeneutic should conform to the the life and teaching of Jesus. And mm -hmm. so if we're studying a passage and we come to some conclusion that contradicts what Jesus taught or said, then it's, it's mm -hmm. not accurate. One of the things that I wrestle with sometimes though is Jesus seems to teach with an assumption that his readers know the Old Testament well. Yes. Yeah, and so very yeah, much how, so. how do you reconcile that? And kind of what are yeah. some advice? In fact, that you he have? defines his own ministry by using Old Testament terms, um, "Son of Man" and so on. And he's clearly, yeah. you know, kingdom God, kingdom of God is a from Isaiah, um, "Son of Man" mm -hmm. from Daniel. Some of his favorite terms were clearly Old Testament terms. Um, and on the divorce and remarriage topic, very much he was addressing the question of how do we interpret Deuteronomy 24? Um, that was the 
That was the text that the Pharisees brought to him in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. And it's also the one that Jesus alluded to in Matthew 5. And that's three out of the four passages that we have where Jesus specifically taught on divorce. And the yeah. fourth one seems to fit the pattern as well. So he, his writings were his speaking on divorce was um, done directly in the context of discussing what the Old Testament taught about it. Um, and some would say that he probably alluded to um, or was shaped by Malachi as well. And I'd be happy to talk more about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I think we have to take the witness of, the, of all of Scripture. And I think if we look closer, actually, there might not be as much divergence between what Jesus taught on the topic as what the rest between Jesus and the rest of Scripture as what is often assumed. Yeah, that's good. So you you mentioned the historical context of the biblical narrative. I'm curious if in in your Bible study, do you study like this is this is an example of something that doesn't really have to do with divorce and remarriage, but something that I've been mulling over um, some historical context of say First Corinthians 11 would sorry, extra biblical historical context of, of like some of what the Greek culture believed at Mm -hmm. that time and and common presuppositions. Um, They understood female hair to be a part of their genitalia and a part of reproductive Mm -hmm. organs in something like that. How much is that important as a, as a part of the process of biblical interpretation or is that, like there's nothing inherent within the text of first Corinthians 11 that specifically addresses genitalia. I mean, there is, um, oh, I don't have it in front of me now. There is one passage that, that we often go, huh, that when I hear that, it makes me wonder if that is what Paul is, has in mind as he's writing. Like how much of that kind of extra out of the Bible background is important for? Yeah. Um, Good question. And I was intentionally framing my discussion earlier to refer to context within scripture. But yes, I agree that the um, historical evidence from outside of scripture is also important. I mean, at a very basic level, how did, how did people even translate? um, How did people even translate biblical languages without comparing other ancient literature in the same language to get a better sense of what words meant and so on. Um, yeah. Um, it's, it's more difficult and dangerous um, to are potentially misleading to, to do that work of, of looking at, you know, what did the Greeks believe at this time, et cetera. Um, but it is very useful. And it just um, on the topic of divorce and remarriage, there's definitely, um, different understandings among authors about what Jews in Jesus' time believed on the topic. Um, and I, I've learned these things just yeah. in the last six months about that uh, changed my understanding. Um, so, yeah, it's important to do that historical study, um, but it's often done poorly. <laughs> and yeah. we have to be careful we don't build too much um, from too slender uh, evidence. Um, yeah. Same thing, of course, with word studies. 
they're, yeah. they're important. They're, they're really useful and important. But again, on this topic in particular, I've often seen them done poorly. Yeah. Did you have any more thoughts before we kind of dive into the specific study on divorce and remarriage? I'm ready, just, I'm ready to move on. Yeah. Okay. Let's dig in. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I think just to get going, if, if you just kind of want to give a bit of a rundown of what got you into the topic and, and kind of where, yeah, I, what I had asked you to share is a summary of your study, but maybe if you want to include some historical context of your <laughs> study. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'm not a historical expert on my own history because I have a bad long-term memory, but I'm, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'll just give a bit of a background. Um, I grew up in a conservative Mennonite church. My younger years was conservative Mennonite churches of Ontario. And then by the time I was baptized, we were part of Midwest fellowship. So in that context, I basically grew up um, understanding um, through studying Daniel Kaufman's book in church, through studying John Koblenz's book in church. Um, I basically grew up understanding that um, divorce was wrong. Um, remarriage was definitely out of the question. Wrong. Mm -hmm. um, divorce, maybe, maybe there'd be separation. Like that was... I think that would have been understood as being okay in cases of safety. Um, okay. But as to whether divorce itself should be pursued, um, very questionable. Um, and and uh, so as I grew up and was responsible to form my own convictions, um, I never really felt like I had a good understanding of what Jesus' exception clause meant. Um, did he give an exception hmm. permitting divorce and perhaps remarriage for adultery? Um, I just filed that away. I got to college. Um, and while I was in college, um, a friend who was uh, the Bible study leader in the Christian club I was part of, um, I discovered he had been previously married. And his wife had been very unfaithful. In fact, at one time, she had even been performing in a strip club. Um, mm. And he had implored her multiple times to come back to him. And she had would have nothing of it. And so they had gotten divorced prior to me meeting my friend. Um, and then while I knew him, he started dating a girl in the Christian club. And um, long story short, they asked me to play piano at their wedding because um, I was friends with both. And yeah. so I, I, I basically went out for coffee with him and I said, uh, I don't know for sure what you're doing is okay or not, according to scripture, I, I just don't know. And I feel like I have to tell you that. Um, I'm not saying what you're doing is wrong because I don't know, but I'm not, I can't say it's right either. Um, and with that condition, I said, yeah, I will play piano at your wedding, but it just felt like I had to voice that first, um, yeah. to be honest. And so that was, you know, that really feeds into wanting to know <laughs> when you face a situation yeah. like that, yeah. you get hungry to know a better answer than that. Um, yeah. but I didn't dig into it for a long time. Um, uh, during my time, um, in New York city, um, I, and then even following that, there was a couple of occasions where as part of being invited to participate in leadership, I was asked my view on the topic. And, uh, at that point I basically clarified that, um, I think the, Bible is very clear about what God wants for marriage. 
very clear that God wants and God designed marriages to last for a lifetime. Mm -hmm. um, there's no doubt in my mind. But I said that I don't think scripture is really very clear on what should happen if that doesn't happen. What yeah. if a marriage falls apart if someone is unfaithful? Um, there's not, or specifically say if someone um, is divorced and already remarried, uh, that specific question, scripture never directly addresses. And so anybody who does address it is just doing theological deduction based on yeah. other other comments in scripture. So I, I voiced that uncertainty. And uh, in one context, it was accepted, you know, as long as I'm not preaching contrary to church position. In another context, it was not accepted. And I was um, not allowed to teach in that situation. Um, Interesting. And so that all fueled my hunger to know more. And I started collecting books. Um, I collected one book that I knew had shaped one of my mentors toward a conservative position um, of no remarriage. Um, I collected okay. another book that I knew that I discovered the author was often referenced in evangelical commentaries um, as an expert who would affirm divorce and remarriage in cases of adultery and so on. And so I constantly, I was collecting books for a while. And then finally, about three years ago or so, I started digging into them. Um, and uh, I didn't get too far in my studies before it really struck me just how um, uncertain Anabaptists are on Jesus' exception clause. Huh. And so it was about two and a half years ago that I posted a Facebook poll um, where I asked, yeah, people, I remember that not, I didn't ask them what you believe, but I asked them, what have you heard taught in your conservative Mennonite backgrounds? And, um, I'm thinking that, uh, there were about, uh, oh, what was it? I think I'm thinking there was like over a dozen different States represented and like, it was a quite a wide variety of, of, uh, input, um, from people all over North America sharing what they'd heard in conservative Mennonite circles. And basically the result was that uh, most people had heard what is often called the betrothal view, that when Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Um, the betrothal view would say that the clause except for immorality is referring to when um, someone who is betrothed to be married in an ancient Jewish context was not faithful to their promised future spouse, um, but uh, committed immorality. And so that betrothal view says, Jesus is saying that, yeah, his ban on divorce and remarriage does not apply to someone whose fiance, basically, in our terms, was unfaithful. Yeah. Um, so that was the view that was probably reported as being the most commonly taught. But then right beside it, um, almost neck and neck, was the view um, that um, Jesus meant um, unfaithfulness within marriage after, after a wedding. And, but he was saying only divorce is permitted, but never remarriage. Um, hmm. Anyway, I... <laughs> We could spend a lot of time analyzing just the contradictions there, but what yeah. Yeah, what really struck me was that okay on a 
on a systematic theology level, it's pretty consistent to hold these views as both possibilities. And a lot of people yeah. reported both as being reported as being possible um, because they work out to the same thing, basically, that today you're not allowed to remarry. And that's that's what's important. But on an exegetical level, they're diametrically opposed. Um, one says yeah. the exception of, refers only to before marriage. The other says, no, it's after marriage. One says it allows um, remarriage. Another says it doesn't allow remarriage. Um, and so they're yeah. completely contradicting each other. Um, and then there yeah. were, I also noticed that there were definitely Mennonites who are content to intentionally avoid even mentioning the exception clauses in their official statements. I noticed that in an official statement from the Southeast Mennonite Church and also from official statement from written by some Beechy Amish ministers. In both cases, they just quoted all sorts of texts right around and before and after, but avoided the exception clause. It just wasn't part of their theology at all. It's just a lot easier to leave it out. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> all that drove me to, okay, I'm not comfortable. My dad taught me honesty. Um, <laughs> I got to deal with all the evidence as even handedly as I can. Yeah. Um, and so from there, I basically said, okay, one way to dig into this is to ask what the early Anabaptists believe, because current Mennonites are very inconsistent on this. So let's see what the early Anabaptists believe. And um, yeah, I was, uh, and this kind of leads me into the first point. You asked me things that surprised me. Yeah. Um, I was surprised how uniformly the early Anabaptists all agreed that um, in cases of adultery, remarriage is permitted. Interesting. That that was uh, not even questioned among early Anabaptists. Um, and, so that's yeah, not. I found. That, go ahead. That well, I was just going to say that's neither of the betrothal view or the the. Um, no, exactly. No, this this is yeah. a different view. Um, and in fact, the betrothal view I've discovered since is historically recent. I can't okay. find evidence for anything like it prior to 1700. Oh, interesting. Like anywhere, not just speaking among Anabaptists, but anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the early Anabaptists had a view that was different than either of the dominant views that most of us conservative Mennonites grew up hearing. Uh -huh. um, and in their view, they they started with Jesus' words. They were Christocentric. They started with Matthew, Matthew's gospel, which is historically the gospel that the early church started with on most of their okay. doctrinal points. And so obviously they ran into Jesus' exception clauses because both of both Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 include an exception clause. And so they just took it at face value as referring to um, within marriage, adult uh, unfaithfulness happening within marriage, and that when that happens, they said that's the only situation in which divorce and remarriage was permitted. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, that they, they stated that in a tract that um, is very early. Um, Swiss Anabaptists were first had their first baptism ceremony in 1525, I believe. This earliest tract on divorce could be as early as 1527, uh, no no later than 1533. Oh, wow. 
and it says very clearly mm -hmm. that um, um, if if someone's spouse cleaves to a harlot, then his marriage is broken. Um, the person who cleaves to the married to this harlot, his marriage is broken because he's become one flesh with the harlot now. Therefore, the abandoned one may marry whomsoever he wishes, only it must be in the Lord. Interesting. And I found I found at least a dozen sources within the 1500s that said the, that agreed with that, and then at least a dozen, over a dozen, between 1600 and 1865 that also agreed. Um, and I found none in those time periods that disagreed. <laughs> Interesting, and that's specifically within Anabaptist. Churches, yes, that's church that's speaking writings. Anabaptist, yeah. Anabaptist yeah. writings. Yeah, mm -hmm. whether they were like testimonies that someone are at a trial or an official statement of faith or so okay. on. Yeah, interesting. Hey friends, this podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Dwell app. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Dwell audio Bible app, but this app is phenomenal. It it's changed my life in several different ways. As a Bible college student, I do tremendous amounts of Bible reading throughout the semester, more than I normally do. And I'm not a fast reader. And so one of the ways that I have been able to keep on top of the Bible reading is through the Dwell app. One, one of the things I really like about it is there's very meditative, reflective music played in the background of the reader. So it's not dramatized. Some some audio Bible apps are dra dramatized and that's a little, I don't know, not my cup of tea. But it's a very calming and just peaceful way of having the Bible read to you. There's also, there's at least 15, I think there's close to 30 by now, different voices that you can choose from. There's many different translations you can choose from. For the ESV, I think there's maybe two or three voices, if that makes sense. But there's over 15 voices for sure. And so you can have a female voice, you can have a male voice, you can have a British accent, you can have an American accent, you can have a Canadian accent or a... Well, I like the British accent, so I listen to the Bible in the British accent, and it's it's been a really good way to keep on top of my homework, but also I have found sometimes I'll be listening to Audio Bible as I commute someplace or as I'm doing some other work, or even in the morning. Sometimes it's hard to wake up, you're tired, and to sit down and read, it literally feels like an intellectual exercise. You're just... It's like school, like starting your day with school. And I love learning things, but I'm not like, I don't do well at starting my day with school. And so when you wake up and you're tired, but you want you want to meditate on the word of God to just put in my Air, AirPods and listen to the Dwell app is an incredible way to start my morning, just in peaceful worship, meditation. I hear things differently when I hear it being read than when I read it. I personally think you should read and hear it both, but that's one thing I like about Audio Bible is different things stick out that didn't stand out before. I'll listen to it as I'm going on a run or something, and I can't say enough good about the Dwell app. And so if you would like to take your meditation, your Bible reading to another level, you can also, if you're not able to sleep at night, you can 
put in your AirPods and, and listen to the scripture being read and fall asleep that way. I've used that at times as well. But you can start for free. There's a link in the description below, or you can go ahead and purchase the the annual plan, which I have, and it's to me it's very much worth it. Just in the way, a couple things: the way it helps me uh, meditate and kind of a fresh view, a fresh experience with scripture, and then also the way it helps me keep on top of my homework. It's been very helpful for me. So yeah, I, I did I did all that, and then I said, well. I'm really intrigued by how they just took Jesus at face value on this. Um, yeah. I want to dig into it for myself. And so long story, super short, I did some real, somehow, I, and I forget exactly how this happened again. I, I, start, I decided to dig into Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. I wrote at least 40 pages of detailed exegesis on his statement that when an unbeliever departs, the believer is not bound or not yeah. enslaved, to be more accurate. Yeah. Um, and I concluded that, to my best understanding, he is permitting remarriage in that situation. So I shared my mm. writings with about over 15 trusted men in my life, um, some of whom I knew would agree and some of whom I knew would not. <laughs> um, and I got the expected variety of responses, as well as some who were too busy to respond. Um, yeah. And, uh, but... Uh, Definitely a concern that was raised by some was, you know, how come you're starting with Paul? You know, let's oh, start yeah. with Jesus. And yeah. so I, I have not shared those writings on Paul yet. I, so that triggered me to start writing on, on Jesus, which I began back in, I don't know, April or May of this year. Okay. And I've been sharing exegetical posts from Matthew 19, drop yeah. by drop ever since. Yeah. It's interesting because, yeah, I've, I've studied that first uh, Corinthians seven passage as well. And it sure seems like Paul is giving space for someone when like, obviously I think he says, um, if the unbelieving spouse consents, then they should stay married. And yeah, but if they're, if they do not, if they do not consent, um, they are free or uns not enslaved, as you said, and I like for years, I would have just blown right over that passage. Sorry, I'm trying to f get my questions back up here. Um, and, and not really thought about like, wait, what, what are they being enslaved to? Or what is that referring to? Mm -hmm. So, and some people you, make a big deal of the fact that he uses the term not enslaved as opposed to not bound. Um, saying that the term not enslaved is not used anywhere else to refer to uh, the ending of a marriage. Um, oh, okay. Very briefly in response to that criticism, I would say that the, the lexical data within scripture is so slender. There's so yeah. many times that so many, so few times that either term is used that it's really hard to determine what, which term could or could not be used to refer to a given concept. Yeah. And then in addition to that, we do have record of Jews in subsequent centuries um, you, comparing the ending of a marriage, uh, a divorce certificate. They're comparing a divorce certificate to a certificate of emancipation for a slave. Like there was a, a comparison between releasing a slave yeah. and releasing a wife. Uh, the ter same, some of the same terminology yeah. um, and legal steps were taken. 
Um, so it, it's very reasonable that Paul as a rabbi, or trained as a rabbi, as a Pharisee, would have used some of the same terminology for both. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Is there any legitimacy to like it? It doesn't he, I don't have it right in front of me, but in first Corinthians, actually I could pull it up. Um, it sort of seems like he's speaking of a wife who has an unbelieving husband and, um, the, Oh no, it does say in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say just the, the ancient view of wives is very patriarchal and almost like many of them were almost like household servants. Um, so I didn't know if there was any legitimacy to that comparison to like being a reason for why he would have said enslaved, but. Yeah, I think it, it helps to explain why there's similar terms were used in Jewish legal yeah. proceedings for both. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have several questions about Paul, but maybe we shouldn't. Uh, yeah. Let's, let's, let's leave don't Paul on the table. We'll be best focusing mostly on Jesus. <laughs> yeah. What, um, what, what are some of the other surprises you've bumped into as you study? Well, I already mentioned one, um, simply the view that uh, the betrothal, the fact that the betrothal view is so historically recent. Um, I just yeah. had no idea. I, I know that the betrothal view was taught among conservative Mennonites at least as early as 1950. Um, I found uh, a Mennonite tract uh, from that early uh, promoting the betrothal view. And uh, Brother John Koblenz, when his book on divorce and marriage was published, which I'm forgetting the dates, but I want to say in the 70s or 80s, because um, I think it was around when I was a boy. Um, and he says at that point that it's been taught widely for a while or something like that. Like it wasn't new in his time. But um, you go back to Daniel Kaufman's era, early 1900s, I can't find any evidence of the betrothal view being taught. Um, and like I said, I can't find any evidence anywhere, Catholic, uh, Protestant, Anabaptist, Orthodox, that anybody was teaching the view prior to 1700. Um, and I mentioned that date specifically because uh, in 1700 was when Daniel Whitby, an English comment, commentary writer, Daniel Whitby, published his commentary in 1700. And he takes a very conservative view on divorce and remarriage when he's commenting on Jesus' teachings. And he says, um, he, he takes the word fornication in Jesus' section, exception clause as referring to um, fornication committed before matrimony, he says. So he's not not limiting it to the betrothal period, but any time before marriage. So it's similar to the betrothal view. And, and he, that's the way he understands it. But he says, when he introduces his commentary, he says, whereas all commentators I have met with by fornication here do understand adultery or the defiling of the marriage bed. So he's acknowledging every commentator he knows about in 1700. Um, believes that Jesus' exception clause refers to adultery, 
happening after marriage. Yeah. But yeah. He's, he's inclined to take it as something referring to prior to marriage. Um, so he's in, he knows he's introducing a new idea. Interesting. Um, so yeah. I don't know that it was fully original with him, but he did. That's the earliest I have found any evidence for anything like it. So that was something else that surprised yeah. me. I mean, how can the most yeah. popular teaching today among conservative Anabaptists be that recent? Um, yeah. I guess I have enough respect for church history and for God's intent to be able to communicate clearly to his people that I have trouble believing anything that is that recent, even apart from other exegetical questions. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's a huge, huge orange flag, almost red right there to me. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, I don't fully agree with everybody in the early church, but there there's a diversity of opinions and, the view I have come to, you know, I can find evidence for people who believed essentially that there are people who believe that among the early church. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's one of the live options, but uh, the betrothal view is, doesn't feel live to me. It's, and that surprised me, you know, how, how recent yeah. it was. Yeah. That's interesting. So the betrothal view, you're saying you don't see any early church writings that no. would wave towards that view. No, no. Yeah. Is that, do you think that, well, you said that was in the 1700s that that was first introduced? Kind of. uh, the evidence I've been able to see so far, yes. Yeah. 1700 was the earliest. It makes me wonder, yeah, if, because there's been a lot of even just archaeological study on Jewish history and so forth in the last I don't know. I, I kind of forget when they started. I know in the last 150 years, but it makes me wonder if that, if some of that is the consequence of discovering these customs of Jewish history and, and kind of maybe bringing some assumptions then to based on some of the archaeological study and so forth, other historical study. Um, whereas the farther back in history you would go, especially if you think of the early church, like Jewish custom in, in history was their life for a lot of them. Um, and so they went to, well, obviously, actually, like Patrice, what were you going to say? I, th I think you're going where I, where I was going to, but um, yeah. The, the, the actually the understanding of Jewish culture, I think, was radically lost among the early church yeah. after the fall of Jerusalem. And uh, and what are known today as the church fathers, um, they were not Jewish people. Many of them were converts from pagan religions. Yeah. And, and yeah, they, you know, you, you, you do a search through the early church fathers for. Hillel or Shammai, you know, and you come up bare except in the footnotes where um, where a 19th century translator um, comments and adds something, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what I was trying to go to. Um, just the, the yeah. way that, yeah, there's a bit of a void there and then kind of a rediscovery and some of that. Any any other great surprises that you bumped into? I'm well, the, the, I mean, 
Go ahead. I, I was just going to say the, the more we go, and I figured this when I sent you some of these questions, that's like the more I realized we're going to have to do at least another one or two episodes here as you continue through <laughs> your study. But, yeah, well, it's up to you. I'm free for another half hour if you want it. I, I would love to get um, – I would love to talk about radical faithfulness and kind of some of your ideas on that. And then um, for the Patreon supporters, maybe dive into some of the misconceptions a little. I mean, you've addressed some of that a little bit already, but um, if there are other misconceptions of how we've read – some scripture passages. Oh, yeah. And, and maybe if I could do just a super airplane view of some of that, even just for yeah everybody just, and then we can dig into the weeds Would that. Would that work? Yeah, no, that would be great. Cause I'd, I'd love to just like survey, just like what topics have I touched on in my survey of Jesus yet? Just, yeah. Yeah. Go for it. We can dig deeper. Um, so Yeah, I'll just begin here with this portion just by uh, giving an airplane view of what I've been writing so far in Matthew 19 and some of the key points that have stood out to me. Um, I I began investigating Matthew 19 with the question, did Jesus believe that marriage is indissoluble? Did he believe that once two people are validly married, it's impossible for for them to ever really be unmarried? Um, and so, and, um, and that's where, sorry, if I can jump in, is that where the view that like for someone to get remarried means they're living in continual sin as opposed to, cause like every other sin we kind of view as a one-time act and you can be, you repent from that, but divorce and remarriage, at least in the circles I've grown up in has always been viewed as like this continual sin, ongoing sin. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's the, the key question there. Um, and in my observation, it seemed to me that perhaps people were confusing what Scripture said about what should happen with what Scripture said or did not say about what could happen to a marriage. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to test, uh, you know, it, these various things that Jesus said um were they really implying that it is impossible to separate a marriage or were they just obviously communicating that they, a marriage should not be separated? Yeah. And yeah. I don't think um, people have always been alert enough to that difference. So mm-hmm. um, jumping into that in, in Matthew 19, um, the Pharisees come to Jesus, ask him a question. Um, is it lawful for a, for a marriage? Um, is it, yeah, let me just pull it up so I can be, fully accurate. Uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus responds, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and hold fast or cleave to his wife. And so um, cleave here or hold fast is a term, what the, the first key term I really looked at, because there are definitely some people who say that you, you get uh, married, you're glued together. It's impossible. You're cleaving together. It's impossible to be separated. Um, quickly here, I discovered that both the Old Testament word from Genesis that Jesus is quoting and the Greek word used in the New Testament record of Jesus' words 
That word cleave or hold fast is used in a wide variety of situations, none of which necessarily imply permanence. Mm -hmm. It can refer to Israel's relationship. They're supposed to cleave to the Lord and they don't They fall away, you know, things like that. Um, So that was the first thing. Um, That word alone does not imply that marriage cannot be broken. Uh, Then it went on to the one flesh term. It says that uh, they become one flesh. Well, some people say once you're one flesh, that's one. You can't be separated. Um, But again, um, summarizing briefly, among other things, I noted that Paul uses the same term in 1 Corinthians 6 when he warns that, don't you know that he who becomes, um, he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, because it says uh, um, they become one flesh. Um, and so G- Paul is saying that a, a person can become one flesh with a prostitute, um, no marriage involved there. And clearly Paul was not saying you must permanent, you must make this union with a prostitute permanent. Um, yeah. Not even a must there, let alone a, an impossibility of separation. He's saying you, he'd be saying you must separate, you know? Yeah. Um, and so then, then I moved on to the phrase, and this is actually one of the phrases that, Somebody on Facebook just asked me this morning, could you talk about this phrase, um, the phrase, what God has joined together? Mm-hmm. Um, and because there's a lot of people who feel that, well, if God has joined you together, I mean, who are you to say that you could separate this? Um, and uh, and then there's some that say, well, some marriages are joined together and some aren't. Just the ones that some are joined by God and some aren't. And the ones that are joined by God are permanent. And the ones that are joined by humans are not valid. Um, and and I, I think that's missing the point of what Jesus is saying. Um, he says, um, he quotes these Old Testament passages that I just referenced. Um, and then he says, what therefore God has joined together. So when he's talking about God joining together, he's talking about God's creation design of male and female and how God designed that male and female would unite. And God's purpose, his intent is that that would be a faithful covenant relationship. Um, But it's not referring necessarily to something like when I got married with my wife, that God right then and there snapped, performed an act of joining us um, that we are impossible to separate. Rather, it's referring back to God's creation design. And thanks to God's creation design, we we are joined. You know, we couldn't be if God hadn't made us male and female and so on. Yeah. And then even more clearly, um, Jesus goes on to say, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And and again, to me, the the most the most natural reading of that is that Jesus is warning against a possibility. Yeah. It is possible yeah. to separate what God has put together. Yeah. Just like it's possible for humans to undo many other things that God has done. It was possible for yeah. Adam and Eve to disobey God in the garden. Yeah. Um as a since I'm not a five-point Calvinist, I do believe it's possible for me to walk away from Christ if I abandon faith, even though God is the one who unites me to Christ yeah. by his Holy Spirit. Well, um, kind of to that point, even though Israel was God's elect, they walked away from God. Like, Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. It was possible for them to separate. Um, they were supposed to be cleaved to God, cleaved to God, but they did not. It was possible for them mm-hmm. to be separated. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those were some real key key studies for me looking into and, and 
And I came from away from that saying, okay, the Genesis account that Jesus quotes about male and female and one flesh and cleaving, it does not say it's impossible to separate. Um, yeah. Nor did Jesus say that when he was referencing those passages. Um, in fact, he warned against separation. Um, and then more, my last couple of posts, I'll, I'll summarize very briefly because they're a little bit more technical. But Jesus went on to say, um, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been so. And so some people yeah. here draw a sharp contrast. Okay, Moses allowed divorce. Jesus is saying, no, nope, no divorce now. Um, but as I dug into, again, comparing Bible translations um, and looking at at the Greek and just the relationship of clauses here, it's become clear to me, at least, that um, Jesus was referring to a reality that began at creation and never ended. God's intent from the very beginning, God's intent during the time of Moses, God's intent during the time of Jesus is no divorce. That's God's intent. That's God's purpose. Um, God's, that's God's higher original will, which has never disappeared. It was true in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were rightly accountable to the law of Moses. And yet Jesus could say, well, this same law has the creation account. Um, and don't weasel out of that one. That one's still true. Yeah. Um, and so if Jesus was not, so Jesus wasn't saying that, okay, I've come to override Moses. No, he's saying that uh, um, the concession allowing divorce in the law of Moses never um never overturned God's original purpose. And yeah. if you're building your whole theology on Moses permission to divorce, um, taking it out of context, twisting it without acknowledging God's creation design, um, that, then you're off base. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I don't think Jesus was saying that Moses words are irrelevant today. Yeah. Um, because Moses was still speaking to people who were a heart of heart um, and there are still people today who heart, because they're a heart of heart, abuse spouses, um, and so on. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's an overview. And I'm right. I'm ready now to start, um, writing on the key verse in the whole passage, which is, um, whoever divorces his wife for sexual morality, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, uh, verse nine. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, that's where I'm at in my, in my writing so far. Dive into the exception clause. Well, that's, that's yeah. exciting. I look, I look forward to catching up and then diving into that. Um, yeah, I have, I have some questions about some of the things you mentioned, but maybe we'll hold off on that for the, sure. the patron members. You, um, uh, was it, was that this year or a while ago that you shared some ideas on radical faithfulness just as yeah, a, I shared that um, just shortly after I was beginning my series on Jesus and divorce. I okay. felt it would be helpful to not leave people entirely wondering, well, where is he going? What does he believe? Yeah. Um, taking me either too extreme in one direction or another. I felt it would be helpful to just be forthright for my readers about the basic 
um, convictions that I've come to at this point. Yeah. I, I remember really resonating with it be, in part because it seems like we have two extremes. Like either there's this, this um, rigid, no, no divorce, even, you know, if there's a couple that's gotten married and they start and they've been divorced in the past and they have kids now, and they start coming to your church, like some churches recommending divorce, which breaks up that family yeah. because the marriage that has no kids, a part of it um, is actually the true marriage and so forth. Um, so there's this on one hand, like a, a super rigid, uh, no divorce possible. And then on the other hand, there's, there's maybe what we might call the mainstream, just kind of, you have people even within the church getting divorced and remarried. And, and sometimes the way we talk about this conversation, which is very typical for almost anything is we fall into these binary options as, as if there's, there's just like two possibilities or two extremes. And what I remember resonating with was you were nuancing it out while holding fast, a, a pretty firm, radical vision for marriage in, in persevering. And so, yeah, would you just to kind of close out our time, would you want to share more on, yeah. on that? Definitely. Um, I wrestled for a long time with how to, how to title my three um, general positions I was talking about, but I settled on radical faithfulness for the view I'm affirming and then um, radical freedom and radical permanence for the views I'm not affirming. Um, so radical freedom, I would say, is the view of marriage that is dominant in our Western culture. It basically says that um, a marriage may end whenever both parties agree it should end. So there is mm -hmm. maybe some limit there. Um, some people would take it further, but uh, basically the, the big value in our culture is mutual consent, right? For either yeah. beginning or ending a relationship. Um, so that's radical freedom. As long as both people are happy for a, a marriage to end, then that's fine. And, and uh, there are definitely people who have taken that view into the church. And uh, that to me is clearly contrary to, everything <laughs> yeah. in scripture that it said about marriage. Um, uh, but then uh, the, the all opposite uh, position or the furthest distant position is radical permanence. And I think this is somewhat of a reactionary position, um, at least historically within the Mennonite church. Um, uh, for example, before the Mennonite church formally, made a unified decision in 1905 to not allow any remarried persons back in, into the church's members. Um, before they did that, as they were working towards that decision, um, Daniel Kaufman um, several times made editorial statements in, in his paper, um, uh, something to the effect of this divorce evil, the only solution is to abolish it. Oh, um, so not making an exegetical argument, but rather making an argument against a social evil. And we have to take a far extreme position and just get rid of it. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, 
we have to remember that God did create marriage for the good of man. It is not good for man to be alone. Yeah. And so I think you can even maybe paraphrase Jesus' statement about the Sabbath, that we should remember that uh, um, that uh, marriage was not made, or man was not made for marriage, but marriage is made for man. Mm. Um, and and uh, there, Jesus upheld the Sabbath, but also recognized that there are times when, okay, this is an exceptional situation. And... Uh, David was okay maybe to eat the bread out of the, the tabernacle. Um, so-and-so was okay to break the Sabbath. Um, so radical permanence um, does not recognize any exception whatsoever. Um, says that a marriage, unit, a marriage union is unconditionally permanent. Basically a once married, all, always married um, position, um, a little similar to a Calvinist view of salvation, once saved, always saved. It's impossible yeah. to end it. Yeah. Um, radical faithfulness, on the other hand, um, I, I believe that this position takes seriously God's intent for marriage to last until death. Um, and it, it doesn't belittle um, unfaithfulness in any way. Um it doesn't belittle treacherous divorce, divorce without a cause. It says it's a horrible thing. Um, that that's treachery, but neither does it um, belittle the damage that is done by adultery. Um, and I think this is one danger in in the Mennonite view that many of us have grown up with. Yeah, um, there can be a skepticism that there is such a thing as an innocent party, a skepticism about the ability to determine who is innocent. Um, mm -hmm. when there's a marriage breakdown and I do not want to belittle the difficulty of sorting those things out. And I definitely affirm that everyone brings sin into a relationship, but I think it is, um, both factually terribly wrong and very hurtful to deny the possibility of an innocent party when a marriage breaks down. Yeah. And uh, so radical faithfulness recognizes that, uh, that both parties are held accountable to be faithful. And if someone is not faithful, um, there is a consequence for that. Um, but then on the flip side, um, radical faithfulness calls one to go the second mile to try to make a marriage work out. Um, it is not look for a way out of a marriage. Rather, it looks for a way to to preserve it, even when there are difficulties. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's a bit of a summary of, of where I've come to. Um, and so I, I think it's important for us to recognize the, da the damage of adultery, the damage of abuse, the damage of yeah. abandonment. Um. Yeah. So like some of the questions I have about that are, you know, have to have to do with some of Paul's writing. So I'm trying to figure out how to, how to ask this while, while not um, nudging you into a field you're still getting to, but is, yeah. First of all, in the old Testament, there's a passage and I, I was thinking it's Leviticus, but is it in Deuteronomy where, 
where it talks about if a husband is, is not caring for a wife as he should, then she is free. Then, then he should let her go and be free to marry. Do you, do you know what passage I'm that, referring that, to? Yeah, that um, there are two somewhat similar passages. One is Exodus 21, verse 10 or 11. Okay. Um, there, in the specific context, it's referring to someone who, a female slave who was taken as a wife. And then it says, if the husband takes another wife in addition to her, yeah. he may not withhold. Um, and it's like food, clothing, and marital rights, I think, are the three things. And if he does, he must let her go. Yeah. If he does withhold those things, he must let her yeah. go. And there's a second one in Deuteronomy, I think, twenty chapter 21, okay. talking about uh, a wife who is secured via as a captive in battle. Um, and uh, there's a waiting period for her to mourn her previous household and so on. And then if the Israelite man goes into her and is not satisfied with her, um, then he must let her go. He may just treat her as a slave. He must properly release her mm -hmm. um, and give her freedom. Um, so there's a couple passages that in those specific instances, actually, to the best of my understanding, should be understood as commanding divorce. If yeah. a husband is going to be hard-hearted toward the woman that he has taken as his wife, he can't just sell her as a slave or keep her without providing for her. He must give her freedom so that she can either return to her household or there, there's no indication anywhere in the Old Testament Scripture that would prohibit her from remarrying. In yeah. Fact, the assumption in Deuteronomy 24 is that she would be free to remarry. Yeah. Yeah. It was passages like that. And then there's some, some of Paul's passages that make me, make me, that began to make me think like, is there, should there be more space? Cause I would have, I would have grown up with this idea that, yeah, there's, there should be no divorce. You should try to, and I think like, to be fair, I think it came from a radical faithfulness type vision where like do, do what you can to make the marriage work. But I think an unintended consequence has been minimizing abuse and neglect. And, and it's those types of passages that made me be like, wait, the Bible actually seems to have space for particularly women. I don't know of any context is there any context where if a man is being neglected or something, there's he's somehow allowed to? Uh, no, although um, what is clearly, very clearly due to men, and this opens another potential can of worms, but what is very clearly due to men in, in marriage is a wife's faithfulness. If she mm. would sleep with another man, it's very clear in the Old Testament law, the command was, for her to be her and her adulterous lover to be stoned. And yeah. uh, somehow it seems like throughout Israelite history, by the time of the prophets, I don't know that capital punishment was being carried out anymore, but a divorce seemed to be taking the place um, where it was expected that an adulterous, a woman who did not give her due faithfulness to her husband, um, Interesting. Uh, was yeah. rightly to be divorced. And yeah. it's in that context that we have, God divorcing Israel in Jeremiah three, he says that I gave you a certificate of divorce. Yeah. Um, 
so yeah, there there's slightly different things do from a wife to a husband versus from a husband to a wife. Yeah, I think Jesus and Paul even it out a little bit more. That's a I, I don't want to get too deep into that, but yeah, yeah. No, I just um, I appreciate your your vision for radical faithfulness while acknowledging the very uh, complex and difficult situations that that do arise in marriage. And that, because I think some of the more modern views of men and women or marriage do run the risk of minimizing, or maybe not just run the risk, but have minimized abusive situations. And yeah, that, and it's not intentional in most situations. Yeah. And in some churches, I don't think it's even worked out that way in practice. I think some have managed to, you know, at least. Um, be able to grant a wife separation yeah. um, honorably in abuse situations. Yeah. But I also have heard stories of situations where conservative Mennonite churches have not been able to do even that, yeah. not been able to even allow a, a wife to separate unless she receives an injury that would put her in the hospital or something, you know, yeah. which I'm sorry, yeah. it's too late if you have to wait that long. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and so that was actually, someone shared a question with me just this morning, knowing that we we're going to talk here. And I think that was the question that got the most, you know, likes everybody. There's a lot of people who, who are concerned about that. That question um, uh, is, can there be support for separated and divorced people in the conservative churches who are against remarriage? Can there be support for these separated and divorced people who are inv involuntarily divorced or separated because of the sin of their partner? Hmm. And, and there's hmm. enough people who have experienced that there isn't support for such people yeah. in the churches, that this is yeah. a problem. Yeah. Um, it's a problem even if you don't come to an understanding that Scripture permits remarriage, we should be able to very clearly and publicly support those who have had unfaithful or abusive partners. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> another person had asked me about, well, isn't there value in, isn't there value in singleness, you know, and remaining and waiting? And, and I think there is like, um, well, like my mom, my mom always likes to remind me rightly that God has a heart for reconciliation and, and God yeah. does. Um, I, I, I was go for it. I don't Yeah, I, yeah well, To me, one, one burning thing in my mind is that we can't minimize what adultery is that the treachery yeah. of adultery, it, it was due capital punishment in the old Testament. Um, it was, right up there with the worst of crimes, adultery. Yeah. And when a spouse commits that in a marriage, we cannot minimize that. God did divorce his wife in the Old Testament, even if he took her back later. Yeah. He did divorce her. Um, and it seems to clear to me from Scripture that a spouse has the right to divorce an adulterous spouse. Yeah. Now, there can be an honor in going and not claiming your right 
Paul did not claim his right to be supported as a preacher. Um, he did not claim the right to bring a wife along with him while he was preaching. Yeah. Um, but he did not turn around and say, no minister must ever accept support. Yeah. And I think we go too far when we say that um, God's vision for reconciliation is so important that it is no one must ever divorce an adulterous spouse. Yeah. No, I think actually we honor them more if we say you have full right to divorce. If God gives you grace to wait yeah. and never divorce, divorce your spouse, never remarry, that's a wonderful grace. And you're bearing, you can serve God wonderfully as a single yeah. while you're waiting. Yeah. Um, but you're doing that while knowing full well you do have the right to divorce because you're the, yeah. the crime committed against you was so egregious. Adultery is so yeah. strong of a crime. Yeah. And so I think we actually honor, um, we honor marriage more when we recognize how serious adultery is. Yeah, that's really good. I, as we were talking, I was thinking there's three people that I think of who are doing that. They have, their spouses have been unfaithful, either abusive or adulterous and are now like to this day. And it, for each of them, it's been well more than five years. The one the one I haven't seen or talked with in probably 12 to 15 years, but as far as I know, he is still single, um, mm -hmm. un unmarried. And, and that's honorable like that. I don't want to, mm -hmm. I don't want to somehow create the idea that somehow that's wrong. Like he should have been free to, to just get remarried. Um, I think, you know, even like talking about current times shaping our our view, like we, we need to be very careful. Like we live in a context where sexual fulfillment is idolized mm -hmm. and it's shaping how we view marriage. It's shaping how we view marriage mm -hmm. when we're dealing with with conflicting sexual desires inside of inside mm -hmm. of ourselves is shaping how we view marriage when we're dealing with abuse and ad adultery and like the essence of life is not sexual fulfillment. And I think a, a key mm -hmm. group of people responsible in that whole conversation are those of us who are married, happily married. We can sometimes live as though the essence of life is sexual fulfillment. Yes. There's nothing standing in between us and sexual fulfillment, but there's something much greater that life is about. And, and the friends, the people that I know of who have caught onto that, whether they're same sex attracted and choosing celibacy as a way of being mm -hmm. faithful to God, or whether they've been in abusive relationships and they're choosing to honor their, the, the potential for reconciliation by remaining single, like they know something about life that I'm not sure I even have fully grasped mm -hmm. um, in, in just a, yeah. And so I want to honor, honor people in yes. those situations. Yes. I, I, I fully affirm what you said. I'll put a plug in for a book that um, I disagree with on his conclusion about whether remarriage is ever permitted. He says, no, I say yes, but I think it's one of the best books I've ever read on. And I haven't read that many to be honest, but him dealing with it, the New Testament on singleness, a book by mm. Andrew Corns. 
Andrew Corns, and I forget the title of it, it's about divorce and remarriage. You can easily find it just by looking up Andrew Corns. And he, he deals very well with the Bible's high view of singleness. And Interesting. That's yeah. Yeah. Um, up, yeah. On the flip side, though, the, the permission to remarry is also important to hang on to because um, just a story. I, I have a friend who her husband was unfaithful, um, committed adultery. <laughs> they were conservative Mennonite. They went to get counseling. They received counsel out, not from a conservative Mennonite. And she says the conservative Mennonite counselor said that she has a right to divorce her husband. He's not telling her what to do. The counselor's not telling her, but she has a right, uh-huh. according to scripture, to divorce her husband for adultery. That's her yeah. decision. She has to decide, is she going to fight for this marriage or is it time to go? And yeah. she told me that it was that freedom to divorce mm-hmm. if she wanted to that gave her the courage to fight <laughs> Interesting. because it recognized it validated the seriousness of the offense against her. Yeah. And that's part of what I'm, I'm getting at here. I think. Yeah. 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 That's good. I, I, I agree. Like, I don't know if that's, that's the essence of your position, but I will uh, tip my cards as well. And I, th- I think too, that I would have a really hard time coming to a conclusion that says scripture does not allow for a, divorce i mean, like i i think i don't think we're being very faithful to scripture to say that there's no possibility of divorce um and then remarriage is one that i'm still working through but it it, it does seem like there's there's space that i have not i did not grow up with in when i thought about um marriage mm-hmm. but also very clearly the vision God's vision for marriage, and we see this in Jesus and even in Paul, is for a marriage that freely gives to each other, sexually, emotionally, physically, like everything, they're committed yes. to each other through the... Yes. And 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 I'll just say that the, I don't eagerly get involved in personally counseling people in their marriage situations, but I briefly did with a co-worker. In my mo- so this is my most recent occasion in counseling someone and in his situation i was able to lead him to scriptures that he said he was telling me i i think it might be time to move on i'm wondering he, he and his mm. wife both profess to be christians they're separated physically but not divorced he's saying maybe it's time to move on uh i hear that summary and i say orange flags i'm not sure that according to scripture you have freedom to move on because mm. he said mm. you know she's been faithful as far as you know no, no unfaithfulness um, yeah. as far as I know, no abuse or anything, um, just not getting along, you know? Um, and so I pointed him to some scriptures and that, that encouraged him to work harder for his marriage. And the last he reported to me is he said, he reached out to his wife again, based on those scriptures. And so that, that's really like that, yeah. that's radical faithfulness. Like yeah. go the second mile, work hard. Um, Amen. yeah, that's what I want to communicate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, we I have kept you long enough. Thanks so much for coming on and having this discussion. There's we yeah, we've feels like we've scratched the ice, the the tip of an iceberg here that we could unload further. But I um, yeah, I agree. I just want to refer everyone. If if you're not familiar with Dwight, he has. His own website, Dwight Gingrich. Is it just DwightGingrich.com? 
Yep. DwightGingrich.com. Gingrich. Um, Sorry. Yeah, but it's C-H on the end. And yeah. no E in my last name. That's fine. If you search for it that way, you'll still find it. But it's Gingrich is the yeah. way it would be pronounced. Phonetics of it, yeah. Yeah, he's – I highly recommend go go um, peruse his website. He's got all kinds of resources. Subscribe to his blog. You get an email every time he releases a new one. And I, I would recommend – he has a – Dwight did not ask me to do this and I'm not getting anything from it. But as, as a writer, I know that it's hard to devote good study and time to it when it feels like it's carving into the margins of your life. And if you're not paid for it in any way, then it, it really does just car carve into the margins of your life. And Dwight has a PayPal button on his website, I recommend supporting him at least if if you like this type of work being done. That way, even just a little bit. I have a patron, and yes, there are certain people who are gonna. If you want to access some of our further discussions, you're gonna have to become a patron member. But if you can only choose between supporting me or supporting Dwight, I recommend supporting Dwight. Go make it possible. That's, that's to, very generous. Thank you. Yeah, so you're you're how how much farther do you have with uh the te writing on Jesus? You you said you're getting ready to jump into the exception clause specifically. Yes, I want to address the the verse that includes the exception clause from Matthew 19 verse 9. I want to follow up with Jesus discussion about um eunuchs um with the oh, yeah. with his disciples afterwards. I want to try to synthesize Matthew 5 um, 31 and 32, and also Luke 16, verse 18. Okay. Um, and I already have pre-written uh, a bunch of posts on Paul that might go live sometime in the next uh, year or two once I'm done with Jesus. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And you can pray for me that my blog troubles will be solved. I have hosting issues that my in blogs intermittently are down, and I, I'm not a tech guy. You can also pray yeah. for me that I have wisdom about whether I should ever try to put any of this in book form. Um, so those would be two points. I that's, I, I say those requests sincerely. Um, uh, yeah, try to give me wisdom for both of those. Yeah, absolutely. That would be that would be amazing to have a, a book on this. That um, and and I understand the frustrations of blog. I I uh, have been dealing with some of that recently too. That, you uh, you try to keep a blog, and then after a while, you get an email. Somebody says, "I can't access this link," and it's really embarrassing, if nothing else, just to have a website that you then go and see a white screen or something. But it can be really frustrating to try to figure out like what's causing all the issues. So definitely be praying about that as well. I just want to heartily thank you again for your time, allowing me to join you. Um, yeah, and uh, I think I'll move on now. I want to go out for a date with my wife. Sounds so, uh, good. Thanks for taking the day. time. You yeah. too. Unfeigned Christianity.
Christianity is brought to you by our members at Patreon. As a part of the membership program, you receive two deep dive essays a month and expanded versions of all our podcast interviews. If you would like to become a member, visit www.asherwhitmer.com forward slash member. Unfaith Christianity Podcast is also a part of two networks, the Restorative Faith Collective, where we have conversations about race, perspectives, and relationships in an Anabaptist context. To learn about more articles and podcasts, visit www.restorativefaithcollective.org. The second network is the Kingdom Outpost, where we talk about what it looks like to live as Jesus's nation in today's world. For more podcasts and articles, visit kingdomoutpost.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.